Hello, everybody. I have so many buttons to push. You don't have any idea. Uh, hello, everybody, and welcome to Telescope Talk Pro, a hangout designed to let you know about all the amazing happenings in the world of professional ground-based astronomy from all over the globe. My name is Tony Darnell from deepastronomy.space, and I'm very excited about today's hangout because we're going to be talking about ESO, the European Southern Observatory. It is the foremost intergovernmental astronomy organization in Europe and the world's most productive, they say, astronomical observatory. I'm going to ask them about that, what that means here in just a minute. We're going to talk about that. So ESO provides state-of-the-art research facilities to astronomers and is supported by Austria, Belgium, the Czech Republic, Denmark, Finland, France, Germany, Ireland, Italy, and the Netherlands, Poland, Portugal, Spain, Sweden, Switzerland, and the United Kingdom. How about that? In alphabetical order. Um, along with the host state of Chile, which is where a lot of, I think, maybe all of their observatories are. So, uh, looking, I just got a thing from Peter Quinn saying loud and clear, phew, what a, what a relief. Uh, today we are joined by Drs. Gailey, uh, Gady Hudson, sorry again. Today we are joined by Drs. Gady Hussein and Ruben Sanchez Jansen, uh, to discuss some of the amazing work being done at ESO and get us familiar with some of their instruments. Now, you may have heard about the big news, I think, that came out just day before yesterday, or day, maybe just yesterday, about the unprecedented observations of material falling into the supermassive black hole at the center of our galaxy, lovingly known as SAG-A-STAR. Not to be confused, by the way, with SAG-A-STAR. Okay, it's SAG-A-STAR. Um, or SAG-A-STAR. Um, <laughs> or Sagittarius-A-STAR. We'll also talk about, briefly about those observations uh, made with the gravity instrument on the Very Large Telescope. So let me go ahead and bring up everybody. Uh, my co-host from these Hangouts is Christian Reddy from his YouTube channel, Launchpad Astronomy. Where did my cursor go? There it is. Ah, there we are. And there they are. Okay. Hey, guys. Hey, Christian. How are you doing? Hey, Tony. Fine. Doing great. I'm uh, glad to be back here on Telescope Talk Pro and uh, really uh, looking forward to our conversation today with our guests. Good. Yes, me too. And uh, uh, so let me go ahead and introduce right next to me in our little astronomical Brady Bunch, <laughs> like I said, is uh, is uh, uh, Dr. Gady Hussein. She is uh, an astronomer at the European Southern Observatory. And right below her is uh, is Ruben Sanchez Jansen, uh, not from the Royal Observatory, as I originally wrote down. Well, he is there. He's physically there, but he's also part of the UK Astronomy Tech Center. So welcome, guys. Um, Gady, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about ESO? Just give us a big overview uh, of what who ESO is and what they do. Sure. Happy to. So um, ESO is just over 55 years old, actually. So it started off uh, with an agreement from the original five member states. So that was in alphabetical order, like we did earlier, uh, Belgium, France, Germany, Netherlands, and Sweden. And um, and the idea we was that they from the original five uh, member states, so that was in hemisphere, that was uh, a great observing site, and they would build a sort of three meter class telescope, which at the time was very big. This was the 1960s, remember? And um, but also encoded into the DNA of the organization from the beginning was this idea that ESO should also serve as the center that helps coordinate astronomical research. Um, for the member states and also with the idea that we would do it uh, for Europe eventually. 
So, um, so that was relatively successful. Fast forward 55 years or so into 2018. And as you uh, listed, we now have increased in size. We tripled in size just in terms of member states. So we have 16 member states now. Ireland joined this year, which was very exciting for us. And, um, and we have, um, uh, various observing sites in Chile. So if you could pull up the, um, ESO intro site thing in Google Drive. Which one was it? It was the ESO intro site telescope. Um, there's various pages on Ah, the yes, yes, yes. Page. I got it up. Hang on. It is uh, now up. I am okay, sure. Okay, so I'll that. just put it up here so I know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> so, so here what you see is is a map of uh, South America. And um, hopefully. Yes, and you do, they do see it. Because I can't see it from here. So um, there are uh, marked along it, sort of three red dots, if you can see them, which are La Silla, Paranal, and Chapnantor. And those represent the three main observing sites that ESA either operates or helps operate in partnership with other um, organizations and consortia. So where ESA's origins are is in La Silla. So in the beginning, they looked for... Uh, fabulous observing sites in the Southern Hemisphere. And the reason they wanted to go south was because you have this beautiful, advantageous view of the Milky Way uh, for several months in the year, and you also have access to the large Magellanic Clouds and, and the small Magellanic Cloud. And so there were various astronomical objects of interest that they really wanted to target. So they looked in South Africa for a while, but then they realized that actually Chile was a really great place to go. And um, so all of our observing sites now are essentially at some point along the Atacama Desert, which is what's sort of shown here in this map. And uh, so the Atacama Desert is basically the driest place on Earth. And what's more, especially at the observing sites where, where we operate, they're some of the most stable uh, observing conditions you can hope for. So, um, so that's kind of where we're at today. It's also it's also very um, dry there because it's in it's in the desert. There's very little water vapor, which is important, isn't it? Uh, for observing. yes, absolutely. And so, actually, so near La Silla, there's two other major observatories. There's CTIO and there's Las Campanas, which are both sort of U.S. based, and um, and that really shows that a lot of worldwide astronomers about the same time decided to decamp and go to uh, the same part of the mountain range. Paranal was discovered later. Uh, Tony, if you could just move down to the second uh, page in that in that collection. I am there. Yeah, so here you can see a satellite image and you can see the positions of where the VLT is, where is where the Paranel site is, which is kind of our flagship observatory right now. It's where operations are very much concentrated and where most of the activity is concentrated. And you can see ALMA, which is the other site that we help operate. So ESO is also the European partner in the Atacama Large Millimeter Submillimeter Array. And uh, Chafnantur, where ALMA is, is 5,000 meters altitude. And so it is extremely dry and above essentially most of most of the clouds that you'd worry about. And the satellite imagery really shows that even while you have clouds butting the coast of, of Chile, they're not really going to affect an observer. Um, you know, it's like this little thing. island of clearness uh, around all of these. Look, look at those clouds everywhere, and except not where exactly. these observatories are. Uh, Getty, uh, just, to, just to clarify something, you mentioned that ALMA, so the ESO is the largest partner uh, in, Al in, in ALMA, and ESO, of course, is a multi 
it's a partnership of several countries. So who else other than ESO is involved with ALMA? So it's, I don't know if it's the largest partner, but it's the European partner in, in ALMA. I gotcha. So, okay. so there's, um, there's North America, there's Japan, there's, um, there's also, I, I and I think that's essentially it. <laughs> no, it's, it's those three. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. All so right. a truly international collaboration. It's a very international collaboration. So we have um, ESO employees that are essentially working for Alma full time, and similarly from the North American side and the Japanese side. So it's a it's a very interesting, um, very very international collaborative atmosphere. It's and in fact, Alma itself, the whole observatory, there are antennae that were built on the European side, there are antennae that were contributed by the North Americans, and antennae that were contributed by the Japanese, and they are all subtly different. So, um, so it is a true collaboration in terms of people and hardware and everything. Okay, I, want, I forgot to mention this at the top of the Hangout, but these images that we're showing you and the the uh, uh, the graphics that are coming up throughout this hangout are all available to you uh, the link is in a, I have them on a Google Drive folder and the link is in the description box on YouTube and I will post them on Facebook later uh, but for now you, if you want to get at them and look at them uh, yourself locally because I'm not always sure how the, especially the quality of the text uh, goes through on the stream so these are all available in the in the description box below we are also streaming by the way on youtube facebook uh twitter but i'm not doing twitch today because i couldn't get my stuff together so um we are that that's i'm checking all of these comments and, and stuff like that so okay uh we ruben let me bring you in here and tell us a little bit about what you are doing uh at eso uh you're located in in edinburgh uh so tell us a little bit about what you're up to yeah, so um, I'm actually not uh, an ESO employee. So I'm part of the UK Astronomy Technology Centre, uh, which is the um, UK's national laboratory for the design and development of uh, astronomical instrumentation. Uh, but uh, the UK is a member of uh, ESO, and, and as such, uh, the astronomers uh, of uh, our community have access to time on those telescopes and also help develop instrumentation for the observatory. Um, well, in the past, in my particular case, I was lucky enough uh, to actually have worked at ESO uh, for my first postdoctoral experience. So I spent four years working in Chile at the Paranal Observatory. Um, and then I moved on and um, for the past uh, almost three years, I've been in, in the UK. So uh, at the UK Astronomy Technology Center, what we do, uh, as I said before, is develop instrumentation uh, for uh, mostly um, ESO facilities. Um, so that's the basically all the cameras and instruments that go attached to the telescopes and actually complement them and make them the, the powerful tools they are for astronomical uh, uh, research. So in my particular case, I'm what's called an instrument scientist. So I'm kind of on the interface between engineers and astronomers, uh, making sure that whatever engineering decision is made uh, doesn't impact the uh, science that we want to do with these instruments. My kind um, of guy. I, I was a, I was a software. I'm not. A, I don't have a PhD, but I worked as a software engineer, uh, writing code for and built helping to build cameras and, and so i'm very much a hardware guy too software guy so i love the fact you know that, that there are people who um who can bridge the gap and if we have time i have a question about um 
this sort of uh, the training that goes in between astronomy and astronomers and engineers, but I'll do that if we have time. Uh, okay, well, I want to talk a little bit about the. I, I let me start. Let's start with some of the instruments that you have. Uh, no, I'm sorry, not instruments. Uh, telescopes that you have uh, uh, up on the on the in the high in the Andes Mountains, and I want to start with the VLT. Um, I have I have the graphic that you sent that shows the VLT. Uh, this is a big complex. Who wants to talk about it? So is this the VLT image? Yes. Ruben, do you want to take this one? Um, sure, yeah, why, why not? So yes, actually that, that, that image is a sketch of how the Paranal Observatory looks like. So it's not just the VLT. Right, I'm sorry. Um, the entire um, complex. Yeah, that's that, that's fine. Yeah, so the Parnell is 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 as Tony was saying, is a complex uh, site. It's, it's not uh, a simple one, um, and you can probably see there depicted uh, four very large telescopes. Uh, those are the what we call the UTs. Uh, so though each of those are uh, eight point two meters in diameter, uh, and they are pretty much almost identical. Uh, so. Um, there and then also you can see uh two smaller tele tele telescopes on the top right the vst and the vista telescopes those are smaller telescopes 2.5 and 4 meters respectively that are actually uh, used to carry out uh surveys uh so they mostly carry out imaging surveys of the, of the southern sky and then there's in front of the vlt at the platform is the vlti which is the uh VLT interferometer um, that basically combines or can potentially combine the light of the four UTs together with four smaller uh, what we call uh, uh, auxiliary telescopes. Um, so yeah, it's so Parnal is right now uh, seven telescopes uh, simultaneously, um, and they are operated from the same control room uh, up there in the on, on the mountain, um, and so. What I was mentioning before about the instrumentation, what is quite unique about the uh, Parnal or the VLT in particular is that, as I said, the four telescopes are identical, uh, but all of them have three instruments mounted. And so simultaneously uh, on a given night, you could potentially observe with 12 different instruments um, uh, on eight meter telescopes, right? So the, 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 the breadth of uh, science you can uh, carry out in a in a one single night is is uh, really really uh, amazing. Um, yeah. Th thanks for thanks for pointing that out, uh, Ruben. Because I I always had a question. I had actually several questions about how VLT actually works. We have the four unit telescopes, then you have four auxiliary telescopes, right? And I was wondering if you could describe how they play into you know what what role do they play? So the VLT is is quite unusual in that. Uh, the idea of it, even from the beginning, was that it should work together as an interferometer. So the so you could either use um, the four UTs together, and you could see they're sort of put in this particular shape, and that shape of the exact positioning of the four eight-meter telescopes um, is very particular. So that combined, if you combine all four of them together, you have the same angular resolution as if you had a telescope with a diameter of 130 meters, which of course is somewhat technically challenging um, if you were going to do it in one single telescope. 
that with the four ATs, the beauty of them is that you can move them around. So they're much smaller. They have 1.8 meter mirrors, I believe. And, um, and so with them, you can essentially move them around. You can have different baselines. And so you can, um, you, you have much more flexibility. And so the interferometric instruments that we offer can be used either with the ATs or the UTs. Um, at the moment, but the idea is I ultimately should be able to combine both. In fact, even though the VLT had its first light about 20 years ago, it wasn't until 2011 that the light from the four UTs was used from the four eight meter telescopes was actually combined together in an interferometric instrument. Um, that was with Pioneer. So, so it took a while to actually use all four together, but until then two or three of the telescopes were used together fairly regularly. Okay, so so the smaller unit telescopes are they're small for the for the purpose of being able to move them around. Obviously, I think it would be a lot more difficult to move an eight meter telescope around, right? So uh, these are these are small, intentionally smaller to be uh, movable, not portable, but movable. Yeah. Um, and I and I also noticed that uh, the unit four telescope is equipped with adaptive with an adaptive optic system. Uh, do the other unit telescopes have adaptive optic systems, or if they don't, uh, are they? Pl are, do you know if there's plans to upgrade them uh, to give them AO? So all of the telescopes have been de designed to have active optics. So that what that means is that the primary mirror has these actuators, sort of these control things underneath them that can adjust the shape of the mirror um, to account for fluctuations in the thermal environment and other effects. So there are wavefront sensors. So there's some active optics applicable in all of the eight meter uh, telescopes. However, with UT4, what we call Yekun, which is its indigenous uh, Mapuche name, um, we recently had commissioned the laser guide star facility, which now has is supercharged, it has four sodium lasers. Um, that allow us to correct for atmospheric effects. So, so the, the short answer to, to your question, I've already made it quite long, is, um, is that no, we, we won't be installing the, uh, this la four laser guide star facility in all four, but, um, but there are adaptive optics in several of the other instruments. So NACO, for instance, on UT1 has a form of adaptive optics in the wavelengths that it works in, as does Sphere. It's just not, um, using la laser guide stars. And so right. there are reference guide stars that we can use as wavelengths. Right. You only need to use lasers when you, when you are lacking. Uh, yeah. a, a bright reference star exactly. in your field of view. Uh, do you happen to know, or did you did you already say why there weren't plans to install uh, laser uh, laser stars on the other t telescopes? I believe it's just technical. I, I think it's oh. cost partly, but it's also because I mean, yeah. some of the instruments really benefit from it hugely. Some of them don't necessarily need it. As oh, I see. So, so, um, so, so the instruments that are in UT four are very much so. Muse is benefiting hugely from this. In fact, there is an image in Google Drive, um, which uh, what is it called? I think it's called, yes, Muse LGSF. If you can pull that up, Tony. Uh, okay. Um, you can see what happens when you turn our adaptive optics on and off. It is on um, and, and in, it is yeah, up. So. Using Muse. So this is in the narrow field mode. It has the best spatial resolution. Um, right. And um, and you can see these pictures and what happens to uh, Neptune before you put on the adaptive optics and when you put on the adaptive optics. Yeah. And so now from the ground, we're actually reaching arguably better spatial resolution than you can do from space with Hubble. Um, 
Um, I mean, the image taken with Hubble was not taken at exactly the same time, obviously, but um, but you can see the comparison of the level of detail that you can achieve. So, so the narrow field mode is amazing, and it will do incredible things with news. This um, is astonishing. I'm I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Go ahead and finish. Yeah. Oh, no, sorry. Well, I agree. It's amazing. <laughs> well, I'm just looking at these four images, and if you don't do anything, you get this big blue fuzzball. This is Nep Neptune, by the way, right? Yep. Yep. So these are images of Neptune. If you turn on some adaptive optics and you get what's in the upper left, and then what the VLT can do, I mean, either one well, is still better. Yeah. Oh, the, 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 top, the top left and the bottom left are the same. Oh, that's the same but, image. Um, okay. Yeah. And, and then that's just the comparison with Hubble. Basically. And look at that. Look at that. And this yeah, is from that, the ground. That's a, that, that, is, that is amazing. So an argument can be made then by some, and I'm sure it's being made by many, that they don't need um, space telescopes anymore to do uh, a lot of this, uh, a lot of this resolution. But there's other things yeah. you get from going into space. But I wouldn't go that far. I, I so what's the catch? What's yeah. the what's the catch of adaptive optics uh, so far? You need, you still need good conditions. I mean, it's not, you couldn't do it every night. There, there are certain seeing conditions you'll need. There's certain, you know, there's still weather that, that you have to, right. you have to, uh, balance. But also with space telescopes, the advantage you have is that you can point it, depending on the space telescope, you can point at almost anything. Um, you're not so much restricted by, the natural visibility window of, of where you are at night. So, um, so, so there are huge advantages still to go to space. And also, I mean, yeah, there, there's much cleaner observing windows in space. Than there and are and am I right in understanding that the adaptive optics currently are our current ground-based technology? Well, adaptive optics is ground-based, but that it's primarily at near infrared that we don't really have a viable AO system for visible and short, you know, visible light, correct? Or am I wrong? Lord. I'm not sure, Ruben. Okay. Well, so it's true that uh, as, of, as of right now, we only can carry out the level of corrections that would make a telescope, um, uh, let's say, uh, comparable to Hubble or competitive against Hubble uh, in the infrared. So that's that's absolutely correct. Um, but our technology is improving. And actually, we're moving the, say, uh, cutoff, or the, the, the cut, the cutoff wavelength of active correction towards the blue end of the spectrum, uh, more and more. Uh, and so actually, ESO has plans for the future to actually build uh, an instrument that, uh, makes use of these, uh, AOF, the Adaptive Oxys Facility, to actually carry out corrections at the wavelengths comparable to the red light, let's say, of the visible spectrum. So not just infrared, but moving already into bluer wavelengths. Um, and, and, and that will make it more and more uh, yeah. uh, uh, similar to, to Hubble. So yeah, the, the, the main, the main problem on top of all, all what Gaty mentioned is that, uh, first Hubble can get, and that's why we still need space and they're very complementary. Um, Hubble can get, uh, very, very, very precise or high acuity, uh, at the blue end or even ultraviolet, mm -hmm. uh, light. We cannot do that from the ground. Mm -hmm. and the other difference is that to make that comparison and to see the the two pictures that that uh, we're showing right there, remember that Hubble is only a two point four meter telescope, whereas the VLT is an eight point two. 
-hmm. right? So we're getting rid of the atmosphere and taking advantage of the big aperture. Still Hubble is a much smaller telescope that is providing amazing uh, superb image quality with such a small uh, aperture only because it's in space. Okay, so I want to uh, get to a couple of comments here, uh, if I can. They start, some of them have uh, scrolled up here, but um, uh, let's see. Mad and wants to actually. Uh, before I do that, uh, where did it go? Adam Synergy. He just wants to say that the VLT sphere and gravity instruments are awesome. He just wanted to say that. Uh, so yeah, I agree. We'll talk a little bit more about gravity in a sec. Um, Let's see. And Mad Ed wants to know, as the space is limited, what will you do when we run out of mountaintops for telescopes in Chile? There's a lot of mountaintops in Chile. <laughs> Any comment on that, guys? So, I, yeah, I think, um, I think eventually you could run out of pretty much everything. That's certainly true. Um, for, for the foreseeable future, <laughs> there we have, we have big plans. And, um, and you can see, I mean, we haven't mentioned the PISA's extremely large telescope project. I yet. know. We're going to get to that. Absolutely. So, yeah. So there's a neighboring uh, peak at which we've already started um, building, essentially, um, some, some, uh, the, the next massive project, which will be the largest near-infrared optical telescope in the world uh, when, it, when it comes to light in roughly about 2024. So we're, we're not short of space yet. And our Chilean uh, host country is extremely open to us collaborating with them. Um, we, we try to keep very close collaboration with them at every stage um, because it has to benefit Chilean science as much as it benefits us. And so that is a, a key part of it as well. So we have to make sure that, that you know, both of those sides of the equation are working. Yeah, that's a good point. Hans um, Milling is asking a question to all participants, including Tony. Have you ever been to any of those sites? Have you guys ever been down there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah well, I spent, I spent 280 nights working. <laughs> so. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I haven't been to Parnall, but I have been to CTIO uh, with the Blanco 4-meter, and so uh, that was a great experience. I was there for about a week. Uh, it is so weird, folks, and I don't know, maybe Parnall, maybe you can comment on this. The life of an astronomer on a mountain is really weird. Um, you have, there was a complex for sleeping, apartments that you sleep in while you're there, that have these power drapes that come down actually they're shutters that come down completely block off all light in the room you're in so that you can sleep after a night's observing you do that for about a week and you are messed up i mean it you I, I, you get up at three in the afternoon four in the afternoon you have breakfast and then you go and you start you get ready for your observing uh and then you stay until the sun comes up it is i mean am i right guys i mean it is it is a strange uh, set of schedules you have on these mountains. It's the best thing on earth, frankly. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> I miss it. <laughs> yeah, it is. Which it, yeah. it is. It is. Uh, it is nothing like it on the and and there's also nothing like the work environment, right? You just look up. Absolutely. And, and I mean, you meet people from all over the world. Everyone's there. Everyone's super excited. You meet young students who are just on their first observing trip, and they're so excited. And you mm -hmm. just get enthused about astronomy all over again. Yeah. And for me, I think the favorite moment is at the end of an observing night, you're completely tired and you're walking back up the mountain and dawn's sort of rising around you. And you're just, it's, it's just that wow. 
especially in Chile, it's it's the best thing. Nothing beats a sunset or a sunrise at, at the desert. Very true. Very true. The, the, the advantage of working on a space telescope is is that you can just wake up in the morning, go to work, and then go home at night like everybody else. But <laughs> yeah, I, I do miss that. I do miss those uh, those observing runs on the mountain. That was a uh, Kit Peak is as far as exotic is as exotic as I've ever gotten. <laughs> One of my favorite observing ones actually was at um, Keck, um, if I may be slightly treacherous <laughs> towards uh-huh. Isa. But, um, <laughs> but I remember, That's on Mauna Kea, um, if you don't know, guys. Because, yeah, so, so this was in the big island in Hawaii, and we were using the ground observing station in Hawaii. So it's in Waimea. So you'd wake up at, you know, 2 o'clock or whatever. You'd go to the local beach and have your breakfast, and then you'd sort of get started for the next day. It was incredible. Wow. <laughs> it was the best hard, day. It's hard life, what, you, what we all <laughs> – the sacrifices that you make, you know, Ty and JT just gets me here. Yep. Uh, so uh, I, I think we were talking, uh, or actually, uh, Tony, were there any other comments or questions that we wanted to um, get? N- well, I, w- I know, but I, well, go ahead and get started. Then I have a, well, I, I need to I wanted to, to I wanted to turn our attention briefly to the extremely large telescope. Since no, uh, no, no, I don't want to talk about that yet. Hang on. Uh, no, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> I do want to talk about the ELT. I promise we'll get to no, it. No, no, no. We, I want to go back ELT, to... We don't discuss ELT. Yeah, we will. We promise. I just want to finish up what we're talking... In particular, I have a question about Vista. Uh, the You made a comment, Ruben, um, earlier that it is a survey, one of two survey telescopes. Uh, what's the difference... And what kind of science can you do from a, what, what's so great about a survey telescope? Because we've got a lot of survey telescopes coming out. There's the dark energy survey. That's at, um, that's at CTIO. There's the, uh, uh, Sloan digital sky survey. That's in New Mexico. There are, um, lots and LSST coming up. That's, that's a survey. What's the difference, Ruben, between a survey telescope and what these other ones, these eight meter telescopes on the mountain do? Yeah, so the main difference is probably uh, the way in which they are operated. Um, So on regular telescopes, basically astronomers uh, put in, submit proposals to actually carry out their science, and they either go to a telescope and observe for their their own science uh, for a number of nights, or those observations are carried out for them, which is a typical observing mode at ESO. It's called service mode. So you are at your home, uh, you submit whatever you want to get observed, and then the data is in an archive. So you can download it. You don't have to travel to Chile. Uh, but for survey telescopes, what we actually do is that uh, we're only observing a uh, predefined uh let's say, science or patches of the sky. In this particular case, VISTA is an imaging telescope. Uh, there can also be spectroscopic survey telescopes, but VISTA and the VST are imaging service, uh, survey telescopes. And what they do is that they cover large areas of the sky to any given depth um, um, that actually will serve a particular purpose or one particular. So they will address one particular science case for which a huge area or a very deep field uh, are are required. So uh, the number of, let's say, um, programs that are ex- executed on a given night on a survey telescope is, is smaller than on a regular telescope on a, on a given night. Uh, but of course, those survey, uh, the surveys, imaging surveys in this case, uh, will, will uh, actually provide data for a lot of different science cases. Yeah, because so when you're staring at the whole sky for a long time uh, and you're building up, like you said, 
depth, we're very we're just seeing very faint things, a very very high magnitude or very dim high high numbers generally mean dim things uh, in the magnitude scale. Uh, you're you can use that for a lot of stuff, um, and you could find transients, for example. You could find um, exoplanets. You can find asteroids. There's lots of different kinds of uses for that sort of data. So, okay, good. I wanted to make that distinction because these other telescopes are sort of I always call them point and shoots, right? But you, you have to make a science case for what you want to observe. Uh, you have to get approved. Say, yeah, okay, your your uh, your science case is, is good enough. You can have one of these giant telescopes for this long uh, to do your survey, and you'll you'll get your data, and you can write your paper. Uh, that's a very different use case than survey. So I want to talk about that just a little bit, and that is with the Vista instrument. Uh, there's another one. What was the other one? I forgot. VST, so that's a VLT survey telescope, okay. uh, which is more in the optical wavelengths. So uh, VISTA is actually kind of coming to the end of what it was designed to do in terms of being an imaging survey telescope. In the next couple of years, it's going to be transformed into something called Foremost, uh, which is a consortium that's working closely with ESA. And uh, they're going to convert it into a spectroscopic survey telescope. So it's going to have thousands of fibers through which you can actually get spectra from, uh, it's going to cover a whole range of science objects and science uh, cases, essentially. And uh, it's the field of view it's going to cover is about four square degrees. Wow, that's big. That's a big field of view. By comparison, the full moon and the sun, the disk of the sun uh, is a half a degree. So that is a big field of view. And what's the advantage of spectra? All these advantages? Okay, no, I'll, I'll stop there. Because I know Christian wants to talk about the ELT. So that was one point I wanted to make. So Christian, he left. I think he said he'll be right back. Oh, he went away. Just left us a message. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> I was going to let him get, ask his question about the extremely large telescope. But, but instead, um, I will, I will go to, uh, Spectra. What? And I think that's related to the gravity instrument, right? Uh, can you tell us a little about why Spectra and these fiber optics? Are so important. So spectra are um, spectra give you a lot of information. So so images in different filters can tell you sort of you can already use them to judge something about the temperature of what you're looking at. Um, you can also try and derive some other properties, but you really need spectra to understand the motions. Of, of what's happening in the targets you're looking at. So for instance, if you're looking at high redshift galaxies, you're looking at the early universe, uh, you can use spectra to actually look at rotation in those galaxies. You can actually see rotation in those galaxies because you can see these blue shifted and red shifted lines um, essentially at different points across your galaxy. Um, I think we have a KMOS uh, slide yes, that I'll... sort of shows this. Okay. Um, so this is just all, all of the, the, the splodges shown here are all different uh, galaxies of different redshifts going from that 0.5 to 2 redshift, uh, a redshift of 2. And, um, and the blue and red really show you that Essentially, you've always got sort of an approaching edge of your galaxy and always a receding edge of your galaxy. And this is what spectra give you. 
Um, they're enormously powerful. So they can tell you the motions in the galaxy. They help with diagnosing dark matter. Ruben can tell us a lot more about that because it's much more his science area than mine. I'm much more stellar and exoplanets. But for, for exoplanets, their spectra are particularly interesting because they tell us what the composition, they will tell us when we're there, uh, what the composition of their atmospheres look like. And so we'll be able to actually understand how many clouds a giant planet has, like the Jupiter-sized planet has, and, and what's more common and what, how and compare it to what we see in our own solar system. So spectra are enormously powerful, but not as pretty to look at usually. Well, I don't know. So Tony, Tony can nice. I ask you, uh, can you uh, put in the moon's uh, picture? So um, Okay, it is now up. Yeah, so following up on what Katie said, uh, so moons is a another... Uh, multi-object spectrograph uh, that we actually are leading here at the Educational Technology Center and highly complements uh, for most, which is the instrument that Katie mentioned. So the difference between the two, th the the two instruments will be that for most uh, will be on a four meter telescope with a much wider field of view. Uh, and providing spectra for a few, a couple thousand objects, whereas moons uh, will be uh, on, a, on the Naismith focus of the, one of the VLTs. So it will take advantage of the eight meter aperture uh, and will provide spectra simultaneously for a thousand targets. Uh, so that, uh, as she said, will provide uh, not only kinematics, but also chemical information of stars in our own Milky Way, um, and galaxies at very high redshifts in large numbers, so you can actually beat statistics. Okay, now there's God, there's so much to talk about here. I've got the KMOS thing back up again because I just want to make sure I'm visualizing it correctly. Every one of those splotches that, that, that has red on one side, blue on the other, that is an output from a fiber optic cable, right? Not exactly. Um, so there's no fibers involved in KMOS. Um, KMOS is a multi-IFU instrument um, that actually has 24 arms that deploy what we call image slicers. So basically, it, it's an integral field unit that doesn't, it doesn't use fibers. Uh, so the throughput is actually quite good. And so it deploys 24 arms and on an aperture of about a bit less than three arc seconds across, you get multiple spectra of individual objects, so that's as Katie okay. pointed out. So these before. are okay. So these are these are individual objects that are actually rotating in the direction you can see by the whether it's red, it means that side's going away. Blue means it's coming towards us, and you by the 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 magnitude of those numbers tell you give you information about the velocity uh, which it's doing that. Indeed. Uh, so you are spatially resolving the objects. That's the difference between the multi IFUs, the integral field units, because you have spatial information I every see. time you point to an object. When you go and do for most or moons, you won't have spatial informa information. You will be collecting all the light from that object, but you don't know how that light is distributed. Okay. Uh, and so back to moons, uh, that in the lower, in the lower right corner, that is the, I can't see it very well in the way I'm looking at it. So that is the output the, of the spectra and what it will see. So the, the, the lower right corner, what it shows is what's going, going to be the uh, geometry of a focal plane. So basically, uh, if you see on the right, there's like little, that's the optical fiber. That's the peak off that will collect the light. And there will be a thousand and one of those 
that will be pointing uh, upwards. That's that's basically the plate that you see slightly on the, on the left. Uh, so a thousand of those fibers will be patrolling the entire field of view and putting on fibers on different objects to actually collect their light. Okay. Um, I zoomed it up okay. just so I could see it better. Okay. Uh, good. Um, all right. Well, Gosh, I, I we're running out of time. Okay, let's talk know, about the, let's talk up, about the ELT. Go ahead, Christian, bring it up. VLT, right? Yeah. Um, we have well, the very large telescope, and we have the extremely large telescope coming up. Oh, I'm sorry, extremely large telescope ELT, right? Uh, so, tell us a little bit about what you're working on uh, in particular. Uh, I understand, uh, Ruben, you're working on ELT. Uh, you, you're doing some work on Getty. I don't know if you are as well, but um, if either of you are doing work, just describe it for us, please. Katie, do you want to start with what's the ELT and then I can I'm, go I'm going to put the foundation picture up. Sure. I've got that. Yes, up. exactly. I was sure, just going to say that. Go ahead. All right. So, so this is a picture of um, a, a neighboring mountain peak uh, to Paranal. And, um, and this is a picture just taken about a month ago. So you can see what's happening there. And you can see the foundations are being laid for something that is absolutely massive. So you can see these tiny trucks in the background. And those are fairly <laughs> massive trucks. That's amazing. Um, you can't even see the people. And there are people somewhere in that <laughs> I'll take your word for it. <laughs> it is huge. In fact, there's some great... Um, uh, images. Uh, I'll see if I can. I can put one in the Google Drive soon, which compare the size of what the ELT will be to massive yeah. worldwide landmarks, and um, it is fairly impressive. So it's going to have a primary mirror with thirty-nine meters diameter. So it's it's a huge step up, um, and um, it's it's very ambitious, and um, we are well on our way. It is funded. Um, and so we, uh, the first instruments have had, at least some of them have passed their preliminary design reviews. So they're being built. Ruben's involved in that, um, very heavily. And, uh, so we seem to be on track basically to have first light in 2024. And this is, uh, something that our member states have all agreed that they want to do. So they've given contributions in order to fund this. Uh, it's not cheap, but it's going to be amazing. It is. It's, it's, it looks amazing. Um, and point three billion or something uh, euro. It's yeah, close close to that. So. Wow. Okay. Remarkable. Yes. So, uh, where was the question? I was going. Oh, uh, TGM Ryko wants to know. Uh, let's see. What about La Silla? They have they have uh, harps there. The most prolific ground based planet hunter so far. You want to talk about harps? Indeed. So I am an avid user of harps, um, as I think, I think they know who asked that question, actually. But, um, oh, okay. <laughs> so harps is, harps is um, a very precise radio velocity uh, spectropolarimeter. So not only can you get very, very precise, very stable spectra um, over a time span of many years, up to decades, um, so that's very important in, able to, uh, in order to be able to detect um, the reflex motion due to planets orbiting around stars. Um, so it's been used to do follow-up, for instance, of, of planets, transiting planets that have been found with Kepler, but it's also been used very effectively 
effectively to find planets in their own right. Something that's really cool that HARPS does as well is it can also show us the polarized light coming from the star. So not only do we uh, get the radio velocity uh, measurements, but we can also detect magnetic fields at the surface of the star. So what we can begin to do is we can start understanding the environment in which these planets um, are having to evolve and survive. Um, because that's, that's a big question in terms of, particularly in terms of habitability. So if you have a very magnetically active star, if you have a, a star that's not as old and complacent as our own sun, then that has important implications for, and quite devastating potentially implications for, um, the evolution of complex life. Um, and harps can do all of that. Now, uh, we have Espresso that has recently been commissioned on, uh, the VLT. And that is a very interesting machine in the sense that it can, it can be used on any of the individual unit telescopes themselves, so any of the eight meter telescopes, or you can combine the light from all four. And it's, go it's essentially going to be the new harps. But the real advantage of La Silla is that because it's a smaller telescope, is you can really start exploiting the time domains. So you can really get long-term sampling of um, activity on stars, which you really have to start worrying about if you want to get down to Earth-sized planets. I don't understand um, why how being small helps you with that. Just Well, it's just because you can get long long chunks of time on it. Oh, so it's very hard I see. It's, not, get, it's, it's not, very hard to get two weeks on an eight meter. It, it's extremely expensive. <laughs> and you have to you, you have to really have a devis you have to have like a Nobel Prize winning case at the moment. Uh, with the ELT <laughs> coming, maybe at some point we'll, we'll be able to get two weeks on, on the VLT to just... So VLT will suddenly get cheaper, exactly. yeah. yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, so the cases will change. But, um, but it, I mean, we're really starting to push up against this problem of stellar activity in order to find planets. And we really have to understand the weather on the star itself that, in order to be able to detect planets. And that's so that's something that HARPS is doing spectacularly well for what? us. That's well, I, I should also point out that we're already hearing, uh, if, uh, we have some folks in our chat room saying, yeah, 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 planets. What about moons, right? Uh, so we're, you know, we have, we're on the bleeding edge here at Deep Astronomy. Um, <laughs> uh, can HARPS uh, assist in searching for exomoons, do you think? Um, it would depend. It would depend how big the signature is. It would depend on what kind of period it is. But yeah, I mean, sure, you could. We're we're down to essentially below the meter per second level almost with harp. So in fact, we can do it with laser frequency cams. So so we can do it. But it's um. But our problem is stellar activity. Really, our bigger problem is not technically what we're doing with the instruments. We can do amazing things with the instruments, and there are different ways of calibrating out systematics. But um, you can't control the star itself. And that's really important for us to be able to understand, um, particularly because the next lot of planets that we're going to find, what TESS is focusing on, what a lot of the planet finding missions are focusing on are planets around M dwarfs. And M stars are extremely magnetically active compared to the sun. I mean, mm -hmm. there's different definitions of that. But um, so, so we have to worry about magnetic activity quite a bit. Okay, so you're telling me that harps and and the ones that's coming into on onto uh, the, the the eight meters later, the um, we can you you can measure and differentiate the magnetic field of that star in a way that not only gives you a map of its of its magnetosphere but also things like active regions and stuff like that. 
So, yeah, so, so we have this great technique. It's called uh, Doppler imaging. It's sort of based on... It's called um, what? Can you say yeah. it again, please? It's called Doppler imaging. Doppler, and it's based right. on Yeah, it's based on the same kind of principles used for medical imaging, like MRI and stuff. So essentially, you use, the, you use spectroscopy and you allow the star to rotate and you're essentially taking like slices of the star as it rotates and then you back project them and you produce these amazing maps of the active regions on the stars. Um, and then you have to use the same kind of techniques we use for the sun to extrapolate them and understand uh, what the extended atmosphere looks like. So that that involves a bit of modeling and, and a few assumptions. But but you can no, you can resolve the surface of the stars using these indirect. That's techniques. amazing to me because we we don't even really do that with our own sun. I worked at uh, the high altitude observatory for a while. And we did not have a good way to measure. We did it with, with like you said, with polarized light, uh, but it was hard to uh, get the magnetic field of our own sun. So we, even, even, even that measurement for a star that's right down the road is extremely difficult to make. So I'm, I'm just amazed that, that harps and, and instruments like that are able to get this kind of detail from other stars. It's, it's one, and I suppose you can also get something called seismology information from it too then, right? Yes. Yeah, okay. yeah, absolutely. So if you combine all of those things, you have an amazing characterization of the star, which helps you then characterize the planetary system around it and maybe the moons okay. ultimately. <laughs> All right. So, Rup, we only have a few minutes left and I got to get questions to Ruben, me and you, man, for just a minute. OK, I got I, I love the fact that you work in instrumentation and I get a lot of students and I try to give a vlog posts and, and, and advice on starting a career in astronomy. And one of the things I always give advice out to is do not think that you have to become a Ph.D. capital A astronomer to get a good job in astronomy. I've always advised that there are, if you can build things, if you can program things, if you can put, you know, under design things that hold other things up, mechanical engineering and things like that, then you are in demand. That is a skill set that can be used in astronomy quite a bit. I have had zero problems finding jobs uh, as, a, as a software engineer. I also had experience building a camera, an infrared camera. That experience in a clean room really helped me with working with hardware. Would you agree with that statement that you could get a job that isn't necessarily a PhD level job working with equipment and instrumentation and helping to design them? Would you, would you agree with that characterization? Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, so uh, I, in my case, I am an astronomer and I do hold a PhD. I know you're a capital but, A astronomer, but, but, I, but, but you also but, bridge but, that what gap. What I mean is that, is that uh, at the observatory, let's say Paranal, right? There's on a daily basis, there's uh, almost a hundred people working there, uh, out of which about, you know, 15 are astronomers. Uh, the rest, uh, uh, among, you know, also like uh, local personnel, there's a lot of uh, people doing all sorts of, of, of uh, work for the observatory. Uh, there's software engineers, mechanical engineers, uh, optical engineers. Um, so you can definitely uh, be uh, at the forefront of, of science and technology development without a PhD. Um, so, uh, well, of course, you, you, you must like engineering, you must like uh, hardware and or maths. Uh, but uh, definitely there's, there's, there's a ton of, of opportunities out there uh, if you're really passionate. Okay. And Christian, I'd like to get your uh, feedback on that too. You teach students every day. Uh, would you agree with that assessment? Do you find that there are people who uh, would maybe get 
somewhat despondent about a PhD, but would gravitate toward a career like that? Uh, absolutely. I mean, just just to say what's being said here, you know, there are so many avenues into the career path of astronomy. And, and I think it all depends upon what you care about the most, what interests you the most, what you enjoy doing the most. So Tony, you were saying, if you can build things, if you like to program, if you like to create things, software engineering, if you have a creative outlet, or if you like to communicate, there's teaching, there's public outreach, you know, there's so much going on in this, in this field and it's getting bigger all the time. Thanks to largely thanks to these incredible instruments that ESO is developing. So there's always going to be a need for people to help explore that. So yes, absolutely. There's no question about it. You can certainly find yourself a nice niche in the field, whether you choose to pursue a PhD or not. Great. Um, Adam Synergy says, he. I, I need to get to some comments and questions here. Uh, Adam Synergy says, I've already got my beautiful ESO 2019 calendar. That's a good point. You guys make really nice calendars. Yeah, I love uh, your calendars. Yeah, they really come out. Um so uh, John wants to know, as far as time on big telescope goes, does ESO collaborate with amateurs uh, with adequate equipment for certain observations, or should it? So um, certainly, I mean, we're plugged into some networks. Um, there are amateur networks that, for instance, follow transients and things, and, and we certainly uh, use information that they give us and and astronomers collaborate with them as well to to devise uh, plans here. But we also have um, a sort of outreach observing program as well that uses our smaller telescopes, usually in La Silla, and they they essentially, if there's idle time or whatever, then you can um, get some some beautiful images. And, and certainly we have our, our pictures of the week and stuff that, that come out that, that are largely based on on those kinds of things. But yeah, I mean, certainly I think we're, we're open to that it's just um it depends i mean obviously our, our telescopes cost money and the member states pay the money so it's it's usually for professional research but but there are some outreach initiatives and our outreach department's very active and they do involve people and there are calls for ideas of, of observations you might want um so so look out for those yeah um upcycle electronics uh we First, a comment. We want more G-type stars, though. You were talking about red dwarfs. Uh, what advancements will we have with type Gs with these instruments? Uh, so Espresso is very much geared to look at, at G-type dwarfs because um, it's mostly in the optical. I mean, M-dwarfs, you really you want to start going into the mirror infrared a bit much longer wave that's because they're cooler. Um, but, um, yeah, with, with G-type dwarfs, our biggest... Um, challenge currently is that they are more active. They have a lot of jitter, um, what we call jitter, which is sort of just different different levels of activity and granulation, all the kinds of stuff that they're happening on their surface. So there's a lot of effort on that. I, I think it's coming. It will come. Tess will do it too. But um, but M-dwarfs are easier. They're easier for a number of reasons, particularly for looking for habitable zone planets, because um, they're less massive, and so um, the, the signatures of Earth-sized planets just are easier to detect currently. So we're going to start there, um, also because they're the most popular stars in, in the galaxy, so it makes sense to start with, with our best chances of finding habitable planets. But yeah, absolutely, we are, look, we are not not looking for G-type star planets. <laughs> we're not, we're not, not doing it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. We are definitely doing it. Um, um, yeah. Okay, so Mad End is also commenting that Vista, going back to the amateur part of it, uh, collected data for a citizen science project on unit on Zooniverse. So they are they are contributing to citizen science. Uh, where 
Oh, and um, uh, Peter Q asked this question. He's my he's my Geordie friend in Newcastle in the UK, and I I, I kind of want to know the answer to this too. What's going to happen um, to UK's membership with <laughs> with Brexit? <laughs> are you guys going to let them stay? Or are you going to kick them out? Uh, the, no, no. The, 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 the member status is irrespective of what happens with the EU. So that was, in fact, the day after the Brexit vote, we, we all, all the employees at ESO got an email from management <laughs> who appeared to be somewhat prepared um, for the result, saying that, don't worry, everything's okay. Our agreement is independent of that. So oh. yeah, it's, there are some, some issues that we probably want to wait and see about. I mean, there's possibly some research funding issues but that might come in, but not not in terms of ESO's funding so far. Ruben, though, you are in the UK. What would you like to say? <laughs> no, no, no. I just, I just want to say that, that what KT pointed out, that's, that's correct. And that holds for the European Space Agency as well. So there's a lot of, uh, uh, let's say, research endeavors in which the UK is part of that don't, do not depend directly on EU membership. Yeah, there was a comment cool. earlier about, by the way, about that to distinguish between ESO and ESA. ESA is the European Space Agency. Uh, ESO is the European Southern Observatory. So you're right. That's, it's good to make that distinction. Uh, Upcycle Electronics is, uh, commenting. I work 12, 12 shifts, uh, for night shift for years. I loved grabbing a six pack and sitting out on my apartment patio with everyone going to work at 7 a.m. Uh, judgmental people are funny. <laughs> That's true. You do get you do get screwed up. I mean, it's just I it took me weeks to get back into the normal because those little do do, do the ESO facilities are they like this? They just totally shut out the light. Oh yeah, 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 yeah definitely. So yeah. you're sleeping, you don't know. I mean, and then you get up at three in the afternoon, you're like ready for some bacon and eggs or whatever, and it's like, <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> it is a different world, but you're right about the. Uh, uh, the, the the night skies up on Paranal, I've seen a lot of people doing uh, time-lapse photography from there. Uh, do you guys ever just go out and take your SLR and leave it out while you go to work? Oh, yeah. No, we have, I mean, a lot of ESA staff are actually astrophotographers because how could you not be if yeah. you're in Chile? So, um, so yeah, they, they actually, they, they give us a lot of the images um, that we have on, on our outreach website. So, yeah, they're, they, they're definitely very into Okay. Well, I'm, I'm afraid we're out of time, guys. I'm going to have to stop. I did not get a chance to talk about the gravity, uh, uh, instrument work with the supermassive black hole at the center. Listen, we, any chance I we, can, we also could go way more into ELT, I think. So I know there's, um, and, well, there's just a lot that we didn't even, so touch on. we got to fix that. Yeah. Is there any chance we can maybe convince you guys to come back one more time and, and talk maybe sometime in the new year or sometime around that? That, sure, sure. that would be so Love great. to have you back. Thank We're you. only going to ask you live on, on the air. We're going to so put that... you on the spot. So the only answer is going to be, sure, we'll come back. <laughs> <laughs> We'd love to have you back. This has just been yeah. a great conversation, guys. Right. Uh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you very, thank you very much. I want to thank all of you for watching. We're out of time. Uh, I, I, I will... I will be back on Thursday. Actually, I'll be back tomorrow. Uh, Telescope Talk Amateur is uh, coming back with uh, with uh, Ian Lauer and myself. We're going to talk about stuff uh, tomorrow. And then, of course, Carol Christian and I will be back on Thursday with Astro Coffee, where we are going to be talking about how exoplanets don't like heavy metals. And so uh, we'll be that'll be the Astro Coffee talk at, uh, our topic for Thursday. So join us for that. I want to thank my sponsors, OPT Telescopes, for uh, for for 
bringing these to you, making them possible. And uh, I want to thank you all so much for watching. I want to thank my guests for being here. You guys were awesome. Christian, you were great as always, except for when you Thanks, left. Tony. You kind of freaked me out there, man. You just got up and, and walked away. I was, I was talking a about little emergency. Actually, I, I typed something in the uh in the zoom chat, but I guess you guys, didn't yeah, see I, it. I can't see it because of the way I've got it set up. But uh, yeah, I was like, okay, let's talk about ELT Christian. And I'm there's an empty chair. Oh, so, sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, guys. Thank you. Thanks everybody so much for watching. And as always keep looking up.